Section 41 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio. InterfaceAudio.com. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 2 of the Progress of Philosophical Chemistry in Sweden, Part 3. 11. The paper on fulminating gold goes a great way to explain the nature of that curious compound. He describes the properties of this substance and the effects of alkaline and acid bodies on it. He shows that it cannot be formed without ammonia, and infers from his experiments that it is a compound of oxide of gold and ammonia. He explains the fulmination by the elastic fluid, suddenly generated by the decomposition of the ammonia. 12. The papers on platinum, carbonate of iron, nickel, arsenic, and zinc do not require many remarks. They add considerably to the knowledge which chemists at that time possessed of these bodies, though the modes of analysis are not such as would be approved by a modern chemist nor were the results obtained possessed of much precision. The essay on the analysis of metallic ores by the wet way or by solution constitutes the first attempt to establish a regular method of analyzing metallic ores. The processes are all imperfect, as might be expected from the then existing state of analytical chemistry and the imperfect knowledge possessed of the different metallic ores. But this essay constituted a first beginning, for which the author is entitled to great praise. The subject was taken up by Klaproth, and speedily brought to a great degree of improvement by the labors of modern chemists. 14. The experiments on the way in which minerals behave before the blowpipe, which Bergman published, were made at Bergman's request by Assessor Gahn of Fallen, who was then his pupil. They constitute the first results obtained by that very ingenious and amiable man. He afterwards continued the investigation and added many improvements, simplifying the regents and the manner of using them. But he was too indolent a man to commit the results of his investigations to writing. Berzelius, however, had the good sense to see the importance of the facts which Gahn had ascertained. He committed them to writing and published them for the use of mineralogists. They constitute the book entitled Berzelius on the Blowpipe, which has been translated into English. 15. The object of the essay on metallic precipitates is to determine the quantity of phlogiston, which each metal contains, deduced from the quantity of one metal necessary to precipitate a given weight of another. The experiments are obviously made with little accuracy. Indeed, they are not susceptible of very great precision. Lavoisier afterwards made use of the same method to determine the quantity of oxygen in the different metallic oxides, but his results were not more successful than those of Bergman. 16. Bergman's paper on iron is one of the most important in his whole works, and contributed very materially to advance the knowledge of the cause of the difference between iron and steel. He employed his pupils to collect specimens of iron from the different Swedish forges, and gave them directions how to select the proper pieces. All these specimens, to the number of 89, 
he subjected a chemical examination by dissolving them in dilute sulfuric acid. He measured the volume of hydrogen gas, which he obtained by dissolving a given weight of each, and noted the quantity and the nature of the undissolved residue. The general result of the whole investigation was that pure malleable iron yielded most hydrogen gas, steel less, and cast iron least of all. Pure malleable iron left the smallest quantity of insoluble matter, steel a greater quantity, and cast iron the greatest of all. From these experiments he drew conclusions with respect to the difference between iron, steel, and cast iron. Nothing more was necessary than to apply the antiphlogistic theory to these experiments, as was done soon after by the French chemists, in order to draw important conclusions respecting the nature of these bodies. Iron is a simple body, steel is a compound of iron and carbon, and cast iron of iron and still greater proportion of carbon. The defective part of the experiments of Bergman in this important paper is his method of determining the quantity of manganese in iron. In some specimens he makes the manganese amount to considerably more than a third part of the weight of the whole. Now we know that a mixture of two parts iron and one part manganese is brittle and useless. We are sure, therefore, that no malleable iron whatever can contain any such proportion of manganese. The fact is that Bergman's mode of separating manganese from iron was defective. What he considered as manganese was chiefly, and might be in many cases altogether, oxide of iron. Many years elapsed before a good process for separating iron from manganese was discovered. 17. Bergman's experiments to ascertain the cause of brittleness of cold short iron need not occupy much of our attention. He extracted from it a white powder by dissolving the cold short iron in dilute sulfuric acid. This white powder he succeeded in reducing to the state of white brittle metal by fusing it with a flux and charcoal. Klaproth soon after ascertained that this metal was a phosphorate of iron, and that the white powder was a phosphate of iron, and Scheele, with his usual sagacity, hit on a method of analyzing this phosphate, and thus demonstrating its nature. Thus Bergman's experiments led to the knowledge of the fact that cold short iron owes its brittleness to a quantity of phosphorus which it contains. It ought to be mentioned that Meyer, of Stettin, ascertained the same fact, and made it known to chemists at about the same time with Bergman. 18. The dissertation on the products of volcanoes, first published in 1777, is one of the most striking examples of the sagacity of Bergman which we possess. He takes a view of all the substances certainly known to have been thrown out of volcanoes, attempts to subject them to chemical analysis, and compares them with the basalt and greenstone or trap rocks, the origin of which constituted at that time a keen matter of dispute among geologists. He shows the identity between lavas and basalt and greenstone, and therefore infers the identity of formation. This is obviously the true mode of proceeding, and had it been adopted at an earlier period, many of those disputes respecting the nature of trap rocks, which occupied geologists for so long a period, would never have been agitated, or at least would have been speedily decided. The whole dissertation is filled with valuable matter, 
still well entitled to the attention of geologists. His observation on zeolites, which he considered as unconnected with volcanic products, were very natural at the time when he wrote, though the subsequent experiments of Sir James Hall and Mr. Gregory Watt, and above all an accurate attention to the scoriae from different smelting houses, have thrown a new light on the subject, and have shown the way in which zeolitic crystals might easily have been formed in melted lava, provided circumstances were favorable. In fact, we find abundant cavities in real lava from Vesuvius, filled with zeolitic crystals. 19. The last of the labors of Bergman, which I shall notice here, is his Essay on Elective Attractions, which was originally published in 1775, but was much augmented and improved in the third volume of his Opuscula, published in 1783. An English translation of this last edition of the essay was made by Dr. Badoz and was long familiar to the British chemical world. The object of this essay was to elucidate and explain the nature of chemical affinity and to account for all the apparent anomalies that had been observed. He laid it down as a first principle that all bodies capable of combining chemically with each other have an attraction for each other and that this attraction is a definite and fixed force, which may be represented by a number. Now, the bodies which have the property of uniting together are chiefly the acids and alkalis or bases. Every acid has an attraction for each of the alkalis or bases, but the force of this attraction differs in each. Some bases have a strong attraction for acids, others a weak, but the attractive force of each may be expressed by numbers. Now, suppose that an acid, A, is united with a base, M, with a certain force. If we mix the compound, A, M, with a certain quantity of the base, N, which has a stronger attraction for A than M has, the consequence will be that A will leave M and unite with N. N, having a stronger attraction for A than M has, will disengage it and take its place. In consequence of this property, which Bergman considered as the foundation of the whole of the science, the strength of affinity of one body for another is determined by these decompositions and combinations. If N has a stronger affinity for A than M has, then if we mix together A, M, and N in the requisite proportions, A and N will unite together, leaving M uncombined. Or if we mix N with the compound AM, M will be disengaged. Tables, therefore, may be drawn up, exhibiting the strength of these affinities. At the top of a column is put the name of an acid or a base, and below it are put the names of all the bases or acids in the order of their affinity. The following little table will exhibit a specimen of these columns. Sulfuric acid, barites, strontian, potash, soda, lime, magnesia. Here, sulfuric acid is the substance placed at the head of the column, and under it are the names of the bases capable of uniting with it in the order of their affinity. Barites, which is the highest up, has the strongest affinity, and magnesia, which is lowest down, has the weakest affinity. 
If sulfuric acid and magnesia were combined together, all the bases whose names occur in the table above magnesia would be able to separate the sulfuric acid from it. Potash would be disengaged from sulfuric acid by barytes and strontian, but not by soda, lime, and magnesia. Such tables then exhibited to the eye the strength of affinity of all the different bodies that are capable of uniting with one and the same substance, and the order in which decompositions are effected. Bergman drew up tables of affinity according to these views in 59 columns. Each column contained the name of a particular substance, and under it was arranged all the bodies capable of uniting with it, each in the order of its affinity. Now bodies may be made to unite either by mixing them together and then exposing them to heat, or by dissolving them in water and mixing the respective solutions together. The first of these ways is usually called the dry way, and the second the moist way. The order of decompositions often varies with the mode employed. On this account, Bergman divided each of his 59 columns into two. In the first, he exhibited the order of decompositions in the moist way, in the second, in the dry. He explained also the cases of double decomposition by means of these unvarying forces acting together or opposing each other, and gave 64 cases of such double decompositions. These views of Bergman's were immediately acceded to by the chemical world, and continued to regulate their processes till Berthollet published his Chemical Statics in 1802. He there called in question the whole doctrine of Bergman, and endeavored to establish one of the very opposite kind. I shall have occasion to return to the subject when I come to give an account of the services which Berthollet conferred upon chemistry. I have already observed that we are under obligations to Bergman, not merely for the improvements which he himself introduced into chemistry, but for the pupils whom he educated as chemists, and the discoveries which were made by these persons, whose exertions he stimulated and encouraged. Among those individuals whose chemical discoveries were chiefly made known to the world by his means was Scheele, certainly one of the most extraordinary men and most sagacious and industrious chemists that ever existed. Charles William Scheele was born on the 19th of December, 1742, at Strasund, the capital of Swedish Pomerania, where his father was a tradesman. He received the first part of his education at a private academy in Strasland, and was afterwards removed to a public school. At a very early period, he expressed a strong desire to study pharmacy, and obtained his father's consent to make choice of this profession. He was accordingly bound an apprentice for six years to Mr. Bouch, an apothecary in Gothenburg, and after his time was out, he remained with him still two years longer. It was here that he laid the groundwork of all his future celebrity, as we are informed by Mr. Grunberg, who was his fellow apprentice, and afterwards settled as an apothecary in Stralsund. He was at that time very reserved and serious, but uncommonly diligent. He attended minutely to all the processes, reflected upon them while alone, and studied the writings of Newman, Lemery, Kunkel, and Stahl with indefatigable industry. He likewise exercised himself a good deal in drawing and painting, and acquired some proficiency in these accomplishments without a master. 
Kunkel's Laboratorium was his favorite book, and he was in the habit of repeating experiments out of it secretly during the night time. On one occasion, as he was employed in making pyrophorus, his fellow apprentice was malicious enough to put a quantity of fulminating powder into the mixture. The consequence was a violent explosion, which, as it took place in the night, threw the whole family into confusion, and brought a very severe rebuke upon our young chemist. But this did not put a stop to his industry, which he pursued so constantly and judiciously that, by the time his apprenticeship was ended, there were very few chemists indeed who excelled him in knowledge and practical skill. His fellow apprentice, Mr. Grunberg, wrote to him in 1774, requesting to know by what means he had become such a proficient in chemistry, and received the following answer. I look upon you, my dear friend, as my first instructor, and as the author of all I know on the subject in consequence of your advising me to read Newman's chemistry. The perusal of this book first gave me a taste for experimenting myself, and I very well remember that upon mixing some oil of cloves and smoking spirit of nitre together, they took fire. However, I kept this matter secret. I have also before my eyes the unfortunate experiment which I made with pyrophorus. Such accidents only served to increase my passion for making experiments. In 1765, Scheele went to Malmo, to the house of an apothecary called Mr. Kallstrom. After spending two years in that place, he went to Stockholm to superintend the apothecary shop of Mr. Scharenberg. In 1773, he exchanged the situation for another at Uppsala, in the house of Mr. Luke. It was here that he accidentally formed an acquaintance with Assessor Gaughan of Fallen, who was at that time a student at Uppsala, and a zealous chemist. Mr. Gaughan happening to be one day in the shop of Mr. Luke, that gentleman mentioned to him a circumstance which had lately occurred to him, and of which he was anxious to obtain an explanation. If a quantity of saltpetre be put into a crucible, and raised to such a temperature as shall not merely melt it, but occasion an agitation in it like boiling, and if, after a certain time, the crucible be taken out of the fire and allowed to cool, the saltpetre still continues neutral, but its properties are altered. For if distilled vinegar be poured upon it, red fumes are given out well vinegar produces no effect upon the saltpetre before it has been thus heated mr luke wished from gone an explanation of the cause of this phenomenon gone was unable to explain it but promised to put the question to professor bergman he did so accordingly but bergman was as unable to find an explanation as himself on returning a few days after to Mr. Luke's shop, Gon was informed that there was a young man in the shop who had given an explanation of the phenomenon. This young man was Scheele, who had informed Mr. Luke that there were two species of acids confounded under the name spirit of nitre, what we at present call nitric and hyponitrous acids. Nitric acid has a stronger affinity for potash than vinegar does, but hyponitrous acid has a weaker the heat of the fire changes the nitric acid of the saltpetre to hyponitrous, hence the phenomenon. Gon was delighted with the information, and immediately formed an acquaintance with Scheele, which soon ripened into a friendship. When he informed Bergman of Scheele's explanation, 
The professor was equally delighted, and expressed an eager desire to be made acquainted with Scheele. But when Gon mentioned the circumstance to Scheele, and offered to introduce him to Bergman, our young chemist rejected the proposal with a strong feelings of dislike. It seems that while Scheele was in Stockholm, he had made experiments on cream of tartar, and had succeeded in separating from it tartaric acid, in a state of purity. He had also determined a number of the properties of tartaric acid, and examined several of the tartrates. He drew up an account of these results and sent it to Bergman. Bergman, seeing a paper subscribed by the name of a person who was unknown to him, laid it aside without looking at it, and forgot it altogether. Scheele was very much provoked at this contemptuous and unmerited treatment. He drew up another account of his experiments and gave it to Rentius, who sent it to the Stockholm Academy of Sciences, with some additions of his own, in whose memoirs it was published in the year 1770. It cost Assessor Gon considerable trouble to satisfy Scheele that Bergman's conduct was merely the result of inadvertence, and that he had no attention whatever of treating him either with contempt or neglect. After much entreaty, he prevailed upon Scheele to allow him to introduce him to the professor of chemistry. The introduction took place accordingly, and ever after Bergman and Scheele continued steady friends, Bergman facilitating the researches of Scheele by every means in his power. End of section 41. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, interfaceaudio.com.